Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Thursday, September 5th, 2013. This is going to be another one of those stinking pot episodes. There is no theme. In fact, I'm not even sure how to dive into this one. You should see my notes. They are abysmal. No, I will not be twit-picking them. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and stop and compare what people are saying in context to the Word of God to see if what they're saying is true. Is that what God's Word really teaches, or is it something else? Now, we are officially into the heresy hurricane season, and if you're new to listening to Fighting for the Faith, one of the things yeah, that, well, can be a little bit difficult in you know kind of getting through is that we do try to employ the use of humor here at Fighting for the Faith. The, the idea is, is that we're dealing with something that is deadly serious, deadly serious, and we we try to employ a little bit of humor so we don't completely lose our minds. Um, and the idea is this. A lot of what we cover is really dark, very serious, and our ultimate goal is kind of twofold. Primary goal, in fact, I, I should talk about this. Our primary goal here at Fighting for the Faith is mostly to help uh, people who are being deceived to have their eyes opened so that they're no longer deceived, so that they will find a church where they will be fed God's word, cared for by their pastor, hear the gospel preached to them regularly. It should be every Sunday, by the way. Um, and so the idea is to set them free from bondage to the wolves. Okay, so our primary target is, well, our primary target are those who are under uh, false teaching. Okay, that's the idea, to, to open their eyes, to set them free, to give them a framework for properly understanding God's word, and then get into a good church so that they're fed and um, will be thanking and praising God that they're hearing the truth rather than pablum, rather than lies, rather than be told you know, something that you know, is supposed to be Christianity that it isn't Christianity. So primary target 
are the uh, people being deceived. Secondary uh, target, if you would, and I'm using, you know, obviously combative language target, um, are those who are engaging in false teaching. And it's our hope that they would repent. It's our hope that they would bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Now, that being the case, that's the smaller size audience. And uh, you should know that, uh, you know, many of the people who um, whom I've critiqued have taken time to listen to the uh, to fighting for the faith. The vast majority of them think I'm some kind of fundamentalist crackpot and uh, just basically dismiss me and you know don't want to have anything to do with you know what I'm saying. They're not interested in repenting. They're making quite a good living teaching false doctrine. There's no way they're going to to diverge from that. Um, and plus, of course, you know they're receiving direct revelation from God, so I'm a hater and you know things like that. However, that being the case, there is a small percentage of people who have been teaching false doctrine who are no longer teaching false doctrine. Uh, People who've been associated with uh, dubious movements like the Emergent Church Movement who are now outspoken critics of uh, post-modernity and the Emergent Church Movement and things like that. So um, what I try to do is – I know this is going to sound odd – but I try to keep a cordial – uh, relationship with the with you know as many of the people that I critique as possible. And what you will find, um, you know, in the exchanges that I have with people that I've critiqued here on fighting for the faith is that we generally at times I will get emails from somebody I've critiqued and we're able to keep a cordial conversation going back and forth. And the reason for that is because um, not because I'm so wonderful. No, that's not it at all. Um, <laughs> no, it's that's not it. Um, I one of the things I attribute it to is I try to distinguish myself in the discernment you know market if you would by engaging their ideas by engaging what they say and um, and some and, and you got to understand this when it comes to false teaching and false doctrine there's a spectrum there you know it's not a one size fits all t- uh, ordeal so the idea here is is that you know brothers and sisters in Christ have all kinds of different doctrines that they hold on to some of them. Um, you cannot hold on to and still be a Christian. And so that would be somebody who's a heretic or an apostate. So, for instance, uh, somebody who calls themselves a Christian and denies the doctrine of the Trinity and believes in modalism, they're not a Christian. And the reason why is because they do not believe in the God of the Bible and reject what God's Word, what God has revealed about himself and his Word and are hanging on to uh, a false God, uh, a theological construct that is in error. Um, somebody who denies the deity of Christ. thats They're not a Christian, even though they invoke the name of Jesus or pray to Jesus. So certain false doctrines, certain false doctrines automatically put you outside of Christianity. That's historically how it has been. That's even biblical. You go back to uh, uh, you know Galatians chapter 1. Paul says of the Judaizers of Galatia, um, you know, <laughs> um, if you believe a gospel other than the one that Paul preached, well, then you're anathema. You're damned. You're eternally condemned. You know, that's the you call down those anathemas. So you're outside of the Christian church when you uh, hold to a different gospel, a different deity, or a different Jesus. That automatically puts you outside of Christianity. Then there's a whole lot of, uh, of doctrines that I don't want to say there's freedom because that's not the right way of putting it. But let's just say that there's a lot of differences of how passages are read 
uh, within different camps within Christianity. And in in that particular case, what you're basically looking is at the core central doctrines, somebody who's holding to a doctrine that's different uh, than historic Christian orthodoxy. That person could be heterodox or just in error, but that doesn't necessarily put them outside of Christianity. So as you listen to Fighting for the Faith, I think it's important uh, for me to remind everybody on a regular basis that oftentimes when you know we're, we're listening to, um, we're listening to people who m- probably are our, our Christian brothers in Christ. Um, in some cases, we're definitely not. Okay, so you know it, the question is: Is this, the error that they're teaching and confessing? You know, does that touch on the core central doctrines and tenets of the Christian faith? Um, you know, again, uh, what is the gospel? Um, you know, and things like that. And then, you know, when somebody has is chronically and habitually twisting and mangling God's word, that's the type of thing that's so dangerous um, that even though maybe the person who's doing it might be a Christian or a Christian brother and sister, they're not actually reproducing uh, Christian disciples by doing that. They're literally creating an entire flock of of non-Christians, heretics, because they they don't know how to rightly handle God's word and have no clue what biblical Christianity teaches. So you you think of it that way. All error is, is dangerous. There's no such thing as a safe error. Um, you know, the, the reality is, is that some are more dangerous than others. Um, but, uh, but we as uh, disciples of, uh, of Christ, um, I'm not, and again, I'm not using the title here of a denomination. I'm just in, in general, we all Christians were disciples of Jesus Christ because Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. That being the case, we must constantly be wrestling with scripture, constantly wrestling with what it says and practicing to, and learning how to rightly divide it, to rightly understand it. Um, and to uh, believe what it truly does say and does reveal, even if what it reveals contradicts something that we already believe. And, uh, and you know, God's word, it must trump. Now, again, let me give you an example. Um, this is a, an example I use from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. And I, I, I apologize. I'm not trying to be redundant. Uh, but sometimes an illustration makes the point so well it's worth repeating over and over and over again. Um, back in the day, back when I was young, back when I was skinny, back when I was, um, well, not falling apart, um, <laughs> I used to work at Focus on the Family, not when they were in Arcadia, but when they were in Pomona, California. I worked in the Listener Services Department, which was a huge department. Uh, that was the uh, Department at Focus on the Family back when I was there, when uh, uh, James Dobson was uh, you know, the radio host. Um, you know, we were responsible for receiving the mail, opening the mail, processing the mail, and and corresponding with uh, people who've sent us mail. I mean, it was all kinds of mail, and it, the focus on the family received such a huge quantity of mail uh, day in and day out. I mean, it, this was a huge, huge, huge department, and so and there was different little departments within the major department within the listener services department, and uh, I actually worked in a, a, a small department that was responsible for correspondence with what they would call large donors. And, uh, in, you know, and I had to sign a, you know, a non-disclosure. You know, I would never disclose who the large donors to focus on the family were. Apparently there could be political ramifications and stuff like that. And, um, and it was a gal who worked in the cubicle uh, a couple cubicles over for me, uh, from me. Um, and, you know, of course, in our little department, you know, if there was any downtime, we're always talking and chatting and things like that. Of course, when the boss was around, you have to get to the computer and, you know, <clears throat> and look like you're, 
doing something important. But uh, if there was any downtime, we'd be talking. And there's this one lady, older lady, she she was absolutely convinced. And keep in mind, Focus on the Family was, let's just say, denominationally eclectic. Okay, And uh, this is a gal who was Pentecostal, charismatic, and... And she just thought that I had a passion for God, and uh, but she was really sad for me. And and so she had a conversation with me one day. She says, "You know, Chris, I, I there's just a burden on my heart, and I want to share it with you. And I want to talk to you about speaking in tongues." It's like, okay. And uh, and so you know, we scheduled a time like a day or two later. You know, because my schedule at that point, I was already at uh, Concordia University, Irvine, and studying Greek. And so I was, you know, my, I was a first year Greek student, so I, you know, uh, learned a few things already. And you know, what, this particular passage was one that I was familiar with because you know I'd been working in that particular text for my uh, homework, and we were learning about negative particles um, <laughs> in Greek. Fascinating stuff. Trust me, negative particles, really, really gripping stuff. But um, so she, uh, she, you know, we, we, on a break, she sat me down and and you know, just shared with me, you know, you, Chris, you know, this is a, this is a promise, you know, uh, this is a gift that all believers can have, and and you, you really need to pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will give you the gift of tongues and stuff like that. And so I had my. Uh, I was prepared. I brought my Greek New Testament and my Greek grammar and explained to her. I said, you know, listen, let me show you what this says in the Greek here in First uh, Corinthians chapter 12. And um, and you know, so, the it, it, you know, I, I showed her from my Greek grammar, um, you know, what the, the particle may means. It means no. And it's not translated. It, you know, it just means that the question that's being asked is to be understood as the answer is no. So in the Greek, there's a way to actually construct a question that – that 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 it's to be understood that the answer is no, and that's what we have in First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve. And so I opened up my Greek New Testament and I showed her in the Greek New Testament First Corinthians chapter twelve, and and had this little dialogue back and forth with her. Okay, uh, you know, talking about all you know the the gifts of the Spirit, and I showed her in the Greek that um, it says it, it asked the question: Are all um, apostles? And uh, it's verse 29, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29, are all apostles. And there's the Greek particle right there. It says may, which means the answer is no, are all prophets. And so it's um, the uh, the Greek reads, uh, me pantas apostoloi, me pantas prophetai, me pantas uh, didaskoloi, me pantas dunimes. And you're going, I don't understand what you're saying. But if we were to do a dialogue back and forth, uh, it w- the, the question is, are all apostles? The answer is no. Are all prophets? The answer is no. So we did this dialogue back and forth. So I asked her, I said, all right, let's do this. Are, are, are all apostles? And she says, no. Are all prophets? She says, no. Are all teachers? And then she said, no. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? And I looked at her and she said, yes. And I said, that's not what the text says. And she said to me, but that's not what I believe. See the, you see the problem there? So the idea is this, is that all Christians as disciples of Jesus Christ are to believe what God's word says because it's the word of God, even when it contradicts what we believe. Our beliefs must bend the knee to the word of God. So when you come to a passage in the scriptures that says something that you don't believe I you know I I would bet dollars to donuts that the problem is what you believe not what the scriptures say 
So that's the challenge for us as Christians, because remember, Scripture describes our sanctification as the renewing of our mind, and that comes through the reading of God's Word. And you will find that reading God's Word is the way in which God the Holy Spirit takes our crooked, sinful, and corrupt ways of thinking and straightens them out. Uh, if, if you remember in the, uh, the bonus program that I put up on um, on Tuesday with my interview with Amy Spreeman, I likened sin to brain damage. It, it's uh, you know you can say dame damage, um, and the, the it's it it does something to our way of thinking so that it's so poisonous, so toxic that we believe good is evil and evil is good. We believe that God has it out for us rather than loves it. I mean, it's all of this weird, crazy stuff that is seems to be, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's like it's hardwired into our thinking after the fall. And so this is why Scripture says that, you know, that God is the one who draws us. God is the one who regenerates us. God is the one who sanctifies us. And so you will find that the process of Christian sanctification will not be complete in this lifetime. And um, it'll be a slow, painful process by which God, well teaches you through the power of the Holy Spirit to believe rightly regarding him, to teach truthfully regarding him, to believe what he's revealed in his word, to curb our sinful appetites and things like that. And uh, it is a slow, painful process, but that's all how it works in Christianity. So the idea then is this, is that when you go to church, Christian pastors are men who are supposed to be skilled, supposed to be good handlers of God's word. They're supposed to be shepherds who are caring for Christ's sheep and feeding them God's word and rightly handling God's word. So the idea is this, is that you're not being really discipled as a Christian when the doctrine you're being taught is not what the scripture actually says. When that happens, when that happens, you're not being discipled, you're being deceived. There's a big difference between being discipled and being deceived. And our hope here at Fighting for the Faith is that we can help you to identify the difference between being discipled and being deceived. Because, well, deception is the tool of the devil. And uh, whereas the truth is what Jesus is. He's the way the truth, and the life. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Like I said, today's a stinking pot episode, which means we're kind of all over the place. And uh, my goal here today is to uh, get to Pastor Charmley's second email, which we didn't get to last week. I need to get to Pastor Charmley's second email. We'll take a break. When we come back, um, we'll, we'll talk about... Prophetic pundits being back, and we'll give you an example of a prophetic pundit. I'm very worried about William Tapley, folks. Um, oh, no. With all of the news coming out in um, in um, regarding Syria, uh, my fear is that um, if the United States attacks Syria, that uh, William Tapley's YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash third eagle books my concern is that it's going to become a 24-hour prophetic news station. And, <laughs> yeah, and their theme would be doom and gloom coming soon. Anyway, 
Um, so, you know, we, we got that to cover today and I you know, want, want to take a look at that. And then I haven't decided how I want to fill out the rest of the first hour. There's like three different things I could go to. So I, to think of like the third segment of the first hour to, it could be wild card. Um, <laughs> that's just the only way to put it. It could be a wild, it's a wild card. I don't know what it's going to do yet. I'm going to try to nail this down during the first break. And then, uh, in, uh, hour number two, we're going to be going back up to the Twin Cities and uh, Passion Church and Brian Brozog and uh, listening to a, his sermon from this past Sunday entitled The King in You. The King in You. Um, if that doesn't sound narcissistic, um, it sounds a lot like you know, uh, Joel Osteen's uh, Discover the Champion in You kind of thing. Yeah, um, uh, man, we got a real problem, this idea of discovering the king in you. We'll, we'll take a listen to what he's going to do there and uh, try to unpack it in the hopes that uh, if your pastor is uh, teaching something similar, that you can identify it and rightly handle God's word. And maybe call your pastor to repentance or, if worst-case scenario, you know, you ha- find yourself leaving, you know, find a church where your pastor won't twist God's word. You get what I'm saying. So we're going to dive right into the uh, the program proper. And before the first break, we're going to uh, listen to, I'm going to read to you, uh, one of Pastor Charmley's emails. Let's do this. All right, um, uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, um, who is a regular email contributor here, um, he is a plethora. He has a plethora of good historical knowledge that he likes to uh, weigh in from time to time. He he catches a lot of the... uh, historical nuances and things that you know that you know, I broad brush here a lot of times but he, he can get down into like the nitty-gritty and uh, he emailed me and uh, the subject line reads John the Baptist at Qumran <clears throat> dear Chris listening to Clayton King on John the Baptist is as you know all too well painful um yep it was it was very painful a lot of, in fact i'm getting emails from yesterday's episode listening to preaching intern taylor was very painful by the way i think we're working up a, a kind of a zinger uh, that we'll play you know but when we go into commercial breaks you know with her uh, i said send it like the angry girlfriend voicemail i think we're going to use that for something anyway i di- i digress but pastor Charlie says and when you hear him, that is uh, Clayton King, refer to John as probably a member of a group called the Qumran Community, I sighed sadly. First of all, Qumran Community is a label applied to them by modern historians, but that's secondary. No, most importantly, I know of no scholar, liberal or conservative, who teaches today that John was ever a member of Qumran. While people have suggested that they were similar, the idea that John the Baptist was a member of that community is quite simply a fantasy. Someone is passing on garbled second, secondary information, I fear. Yeah, you know, uh, Pastor Charmley, um, I agree with you. He's sending on garbled second, uh, secondary information. Makes me wonder if he's uh, getting some of his ideas from the History Channel, which from time to time, I don't know if you've noticed since they have a tendency or a proclivity to um, <clears throat> interview liberal scholars like John Dominic Crossan and Bart Ehrman and folks like that. 
Um, if maybe he heard that in an interview on the History Channel with um, somebody of, well, their ilk. Get what I'm saying? All right. We are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Talking about prophetic punditry and William Tapley. Don't want to miss it? Stay tuned. We will be right back. Sissiopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Bird Cage Theater presents Church Day Select. And uh, greetings to the Wallace Tapley Show. I'm your host, Wallace Tapley, and my official title is the only mostly accurate prophet of the end times. Uh, some of my competitors call me the second and two tens weasel of the apocalypse, but I do my best to ignore their comments of hate and derision. I, I do have an update this week. Ah, uh, yes, uh, my direct revelations from God this week have told me something very, very special. It should be coming in right about now. This is a goodie. It reads, This blessing is for a certain person who's currently living in Italy and is the owner of a bistro. It says that you'll be receiving one million euros. Uh, make that 500,000. Uh, 10,000. Five. Oh, um, yes. You're receiving five euros today. Heaven be praised. Oh, it seems that I'm getting another download. I do believe that it's the result of next year's Super Bowl. Uh, this could turn out to be very profitable indeed. It says the winner of the next year's Super Bowl will be the Chicago Cubs. No, wait, that's not right. I, I mean the L.A. Lakers. No, that's not right either. I, I, I do apologize, folks. My computer suffers from Plato's tenfold error syndrome from time to time. Oh, here we go. It says... Handshake error. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. See you next time on the Wallace Tapley Show. Goodbye!
Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor isn't rightly handling God's word, engaging in narcissistic eisegesis, and not discipling you correctly. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you thank you thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it all right moving along assume the crash position here we go Yeah, that's me. We're doing a William Tapley update.
right? It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Boom, boom, boom. All right, that's our William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, and co-prophet of the End Times update music. Now, things are heating up out there in Syria. Now, that's a serious situation. Uh, you listen to some of the foreign policy pundits and them talking about all of this. They're thinking that, you know, U.S. involvement could cause all kind of pandemonium to break loose and potentially cause World War III to be launched. <laughs> Listen, listen to the nightly news nowadays is enough to give you a, you know, a Pepsi heartburn, okay? But, of course, with this type of news, this is the exact type of thing that the prophecy pundits thrive on. And William Tapley uh, likens himself to be a prophecy pundit. So, without any further ado, here's some prophetic punditry regarding what's going to happen out there in the Middle East with all of the serious stuff going on. Here's William Tapley to give us the latest prophetic insights. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. This will be part 10 in my series on the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the Prophet, especially as it refers to the End Times nation of Israel. And I had been putting off part 10 and 11 until events in the Middle East progressed to the point where I had to do these two parts, and... I'm sure you had to do these. The events are occurring much quicker than I thought they would. It is possible... Now, remember this. Uh, back in the day, uh, in the you know, first few years of fighting for the faith, William Tapley um, announced that World War III had begun because of some you know, skirmishing that happened you know, with North Korea. So World War III, according to William Tapley's timeline, started a long time ago. possible that Jesus is already shortening the days. And I want to warn you, first of all, please don't listen to the, all the false prophets on YouTube who are claiming that the events in the Middle East are leading up to the Ezekiel 38 war. Okay, so William Tapley warning us about false prophets. <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of stuff that will just make your brain go, you know, <clears throat> we continue. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The events in the Middle East are leading up to the Daniel 9 war, which talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, so it's not the Ezekiel 37 war, it's the Daniel 9 war. Oh, man, I have a hard time sorting through all of these prophetic wars. Jerusalem. It's very easy for the false prophets to talk about the destruction of Damascus. The Bible prophesies it will become a ruinous heap. We are seeing that before our eyes. What they don't warn you about is the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's take a look at Daniel 9, verse 26. All right, you do that. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now, in the near-time fulfillment of this prophecy, the Messiah, of course, was Jesus Christ. But in the end times, it will be the leader of Israel. And that today would be Benjamin Netanyahu. And I believe that is who Daniel is referring to in this prophecy. 
Uh, wait, a let me read this prophecy. Hang on. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Um, okay, hang on a second. I'm not seeing Netanyahu in here. Hang, let me screw up my eyes and kind of look at a cross-eyed. Hang on. Nope, not, no, I'm not seeing Netanyahu in there. Maybe if I put on some prophecy glasses. The three score in two weeks refers to 62 years following Israel being named a state by the United Nations. And that occurred on November 29th, 1947. Mm -hmm. So we've got to get this uh, prophecy fulfilled this year before the year ends. And 62 years later would be 2009. So after that date... The Messiah. Um, it's 2013 then. Now. So this didn't happen in 2009. He sure doesn't build a very compelling argument, does he? Will be cut off. In other words, Netanyahu will be removed as the prime minister of Israel. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean he will be killed as, of course, Jesus was. I thought in a previous program I had said that, but... That may not necessarily be true. It may simply mean that he will be cut off. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, in the near time fulfillment of this prophecy, the prince who came to destroy Jerusalem was the Roman general Titus. However, in the end times, this prince will be the prince of Persia. And I will talk about Yeah, I remember that video game. Sorry. About that more in part number 11. And the end shall be with a flood. Now, this means that the destruction of Jerusalem will be very swift and sudden. This is not the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman general Titus. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you warned me about those Ezekiel 37 false prophets so that we can... I, are you getting any of this? I mean, I don't. I am not seeing Netanyahu in here and all of this time stuff that he's talking about. Huh. And to the end of the war. Now, what war is this? This is not the Ezekiel 38 war. Dest my bad. Sorry, it's the Ezekiel 38 war. I See, I can't even keep my Ezekiel 37 wars and 38 wars sorted out. Proving that, really, I am just no expert in eschatology. Desolations are determined. So this Daniel 9 war is the war that Barack Obama is about to precipitate in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let me um, add a little bit of sanity to this insane situation. And by the way, this is what is to be expected. Whenever things heat up in the Middle East, the prophecy pundits come out of the woodwork. Uh, Kim Riddlebarger, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, from his blog, uh, uh, the uh, Riddle blog, has a uh, blog post entitled, The Prophecy Pundits Are Back. Here's what uh, Kim Riddlebarger says. He says, with the increasing possibility of U.S. military action against Syria and the Assad regime, it should come as no surprise that the prophecy pundits have been hard at work. Since the ancient city of Damascus figures prominently in the news, the pundits run to their concordances and find those biblical texts where the city is mentioned. 
given their view that many of the prophecies in the Old Testament have yet to be fulfilled and were not fulfilled in in the history of Israel or with the coming of Jesus Christ, they go to great lengths and demonstrate even greater ingenuity, I might add, to explain how the Bible's mention of Damascus in Isaiah 17 must be a reference to the current and latest political crisis in the region. Now, what I find interesting about this is that William Tapley is warning us about the false prophets who, who are talking about the Ezekiel 38 war. So he's got the Daniel 9 war that he's correcting here. And, well, Kim Riddlebarger is commenting on a prophecy pundit who's talking about the Isaiah 17 thing. So, <clears throat> well, Kim Riddlebarger writes, he says, One pundit, prophecy pundit, writes, One of the most intriguing prophecies in the end times has to do with Isaiah 17. The prophecies in Isaiah 17 point to the end times destruction of Damascus, Syria. The Bible states that the destruction of Damascus will be so great that the city will be nothing but a ruinous heap after the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy. This is noteworthy because presently the city is recognized as the world's longest constantly inhabited city. The utter destruction of Damascus will be an event that only the sovereign Lord could have predicted, yet he warns in Isaiah 17 that Damascus does not have a date with destiny in the near prophetic future. Then he goes on to say, another thing to note about Damascus is that it is also home to many of the world's leading terrorist masterminds, with such groups as Hamas and Hezbollah, among others, making their home in Damascus. It is easy to see that if a wide-ranging conflict broke out between Israel and these terrorist groups, that, the, that Isaiah 17 could easily be destroyed. Okay, Syria has made recent uh, defense pacts with the terrorists as well as Lebanon, where the groups also operate. Syria has threatened to, quote, get involved in the next round of fighting. Now, Kim Riddlebarger commenting on this prophecy pundit then says this. It sounds plausible at first reading, right? But there is a major problem with the pundit's interpretation. The critical biblical text, Isaiah 17, specifically verse 1 is not speaking of the end times. Rather, it is an oracle of Yahweh spoken against the ancient city of Damascus, Aram, through the prophet Isaiah. The people of Israel, in open disobedience to the covenant that they had made with Yahweh, had made an alliance with Aram, seeking a pagan nation's help against the dreaded Assyrians. God, however, commanded that his people be faithful to their covenant with him and look for their deliverance as coming through the righteous branch, a future son of David and a royal Messiah. The Damascus of Isaiah's day was in fact destroyed in 732 B.C. during the time of Isaiah by the Assyrians. Uh, The prophecy has already been fulfilled. So no doubt these prophecy pundits mean well, but their modus operandi of finding some mention in the Bible of any contemporary place or region in the Middle East currently in conflict and in the news, and then turning turning that passage into an end times prophecy is to distort the plain teaching of God's word. It's a twisting of the word. If the crisis with Syria escalates, I'm sure that there will be more of this to come. Hey, we don't have Saddam Hussein to kick around anymore. Bashar al-Assad will do just fine until the crisis passes and the new ominous Arab political leader comes on the scene to take his place. So, yeah, I think Kim Riddlebarger makes a good point. And the general point is this, is that We've seen all of this happen before. Now, at this time, we're not talking about Saddam Hussein. This time, we're talking about Assad. Now, we're not talking about Iraq. Now, we're talking about Syria. 
All of this happens, and every time this happens, the prophecy pundits come out of the woodwork and take center stage, and over and over and over again, you will find that they do not um, know uh, what they are talking about. All right, moving along. We kind of have a narcissistic eisegesis uh, circle maker update. Yeah, kind of a twofer, if you would. So, you know, when narcissists attack. Uh, but since we'll be talking about the circle maker, <clears throat> yeah, we got to do this. Belinda Carlisle, uh, Circles in the Sand. That's our update music whenever we do a Circle Maker update. Now, it has been more than a year since the uh, the book The Circle Maker at, came out. Unfortunately, the shelf life of books like that is a lot longer than one would hope. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that, well, a, a book like that often becomes the source of or the center of a church-wide campaign or a sermon series within the seeker-driven movement. And uh, it's been a while since we've done Circle Maker updates. And the problem is this. The entire book itself is not based upon what Scripture teaches regarding prayer. It requi- It basically is a twisting of Scripture when it's touching on the topic of scripture and and it's pri- the primary character that, that has sparked the whole concept is a guy by the name of Honey the circle maker who, who is whose story is not found in the bible but in the um rabbinic book of legends um so in other words this is an extra biblical source but uh, there's a church out there in uh, Arizona city of grace that is currently doing their Circle Maker sermon series, and uh, I wanted you to listen in, and kind of a kind of a twin spin, if you were, Circle Maker, I said, not, uh, sorry, Circle Maker, Narsa Jesus, yeah, <laughs> the two apparently go together, <clears throat> yeah, listen in. We are in the middle of a series called The Circle Maker. It's a series about circling your prayers praying boldly in faith and believing God for the impossible. And not only are we talking about it here on the weekend, but we are meeting in small groups all across the valley throughout the week to pray with one another and to encourage one another and to continue advancing this journey together. Now, the premise for... Now, I want to point something out. Um, You notice in the um, Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us, uh, we pray for the possible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Give us this day our daily bread. So the major premise of the circle maker is all about praying for the uh, the impossible, having audacious faith to pray for the impossible. Now, granted, 
There's nothing wrong with praying for the impossible. We should pray to our Lord regarding all kinds of things. But we shouldn't uh, despise uh, God by saying, well, don't don't worry about it, God. I've got the things I can handle. But uh, here i got to demonstrate my audacious faith to pray for the things that, well, they're impossible. <sighs> Listen in. For this series is found in an incredible event found in the Old Testament. We call it the Jericho Miracle. And I want to take a moment to briefly recap the Jericho Miracle. Now, <clears throat> do you remember uh, what Kim Riddlebarger, what we just read just minutes ago about how prophecy pundits, what they will do is... You know, now that things are heating up, they'll pull out their concordances and and find places in the Bible to, you know, come up with prophecies and stuff like that. I feel a lot like um, after telling the story of Honey the Circle Maker, had to go into his Bible and find another example of something that, you know, had circles in it. (gasps) Hey, wait, didn't Jericho fall down because the the children of Israel circled Jericho? (gasps) There's a circle maker prayer. (laughs) No, we continue. But for all of our guests, because without this little critical piece of information, you may find yourself feeling a little displaced this weekend. Here's the backstory. After 400 years of captivity in Egypt, God raised up a man named Moses to deliver the Israelites from bondage. You remember Moses? Old guy, long robe. Duck Dynasty beard. That, that was Moses. God raised up Moses and said, I want you to go into Pharaoh and I want you to demand that he lets my people go. And so eventually, Pharaoh relented. And when the children of Israel marched out of Egypt and came to the border of the promised land, Moses then said, let's send 12 spies into the promised land to bring back a good report. When those spies returned... Ten of them said, it's a beautiful land filled with everything we need, but there is no way we can ever conquer the enemies who occupy it. And in the face of God's great provision, standing before the promises of God, ten of the spies were overwhelmed with fear. In fact, they went on to say, The enemy is so intimidating that we seem as small as grasshoppers in our own sight compared to them. Only two of the spies trusted the promise of God there in the land of Canaan. So the outcome of that was that God sentenced all of them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Now, if you're anything at all like me, you're probably thinking... That's a harsh sentence. I mean, we think about the 10 to 2 ratio, but what about the 10 to 6 million ratio? I mean, there were somewhere around 6 million Israelites, and it was only 10 of them who said, we can't conquer the land. The giants are too big. On one level, it seems like it is a harsh sentence, but there's a powerful point behind it. And it's this, God wants every single person to exercise faith in his promises. Not just a few on behalf of the rest. Every single one of us have... God wants everyone to exercise faith? 
Um, where'd you get that theological interpretation? It seems a little heavy-handed on the law. Have to learn to trust and believe. So the Israelites wandered in the wilderness until a generation passed from the scene. And finally, 40 years later, another faith-filled generation had arisen. And so Joshua, Moses' successor, now leads them into the promised land. And within days, they come to their first test. They face the Canaanite citadel called Jericho. It was impenetrable. It was insurmountable. It seemed impossible. But here's what I want you to see this weekend. Never let the facts get in the way of the promise of God. In fact, uh, um, where in the text does it say that the, that the people going in to destroy Jericho uh, were worried and that they had to not let the facts get in the way of the promises? That text isn't about that. When the promise is true, the facts don't count. The reality is, anytime God wants to do the miraculous, he always starts with the impossible. Impossible situations are divine opportunities. Um, Again, this passage isn't about impossible situations that become divine opportunities. That's not what this passage is about. Sorry, I'm getting a text. No, that's not the one. Sorry. Years ago, I read a quote from Hudson Taylor, the young man who went as a missionary to China in the late 1800s. He was, I think, in his early 20s when he sensed God calling him to missions work. And so Hudson Taylor packed up and went to China from Britain. Well, he ended up spending 51 years there. And over time, he inspired 800 missionaries to join him in missions work. The outcome of their ministry... You know, can I just read this passage? I mean... Joshua chapter 6. Let's read it. Let's see if this is all about uh, impossibilities that become opportunities. I I, I don't think Hudson Taylor is in here, and you haven't actually read any of the text yet. Um, Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do it for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Now, this should sound familiar to some of us. Why? Because the fall of Jericho and the people of Israel coming into the promised land is a type and shadow of the day of judgment. Okay, And what I mean by that is this, is that if you were to look at kind of the whole meta-narrative of slavery, exodus, the Red Sea, then wilderness, and then into the promised land, that kind of gives you a roadmap, if you would, type and shadow-wise of even like the Christian life. Okay, We're born dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to sin, death, and the devil, and God exoduses us uh, and you know, through baptism, and then we spend our lifetime in the wilderness, and then we come into the promised land. The promised land now for Christians is not some posted stamps piece of real estate uh, out there in the Middle East. The promised land for Christians is the new earth. Okay? 
So this, in a sense, becomes a type and shadow of God's judgment. So here we've got the seven trumpets, and you're thinking, that sounds kind of like Exodus talk. Right! Okay, so when Israel comes in to take possession of the promised land, God is going to judge the the people who inhabit the earth, and they will be conquered by true Israel, okay? So this is type and shadow of the end of the world, if you would. So seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, again, what's going to be the return of Christ? It's the trumpet, right? Okay. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord." And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them, the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets were blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. And so they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day when they marched around the city seven times, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Remember the scarlet thread? You can think of the scarlet thread as type and shadow of the blood of Christ. I think that the church fathers were right in, in identifying it in that way. And so the idea is, is that Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her, those are the only ones who will, be, who will live on the day of judgment. Right? So you and I are with Rahab the prostitute, with her, with the scarlet thread of Christ's blood in Christ's church, full of sinners saved by grace, right? Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have uh, devoted them you lay any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and the gold vessels of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all of the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there a woman 
and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So what we have here is not an example of praying circles or circle maker praying. This is a story of God's judgment and God's salvation of those who believe. But we continue with Dr. Terry Christ from... um, Uh, City of Grace Church in Mesa, Arizona. Here we go. History was that tens of thousands of Chinese people came to faith in Jesus. And time and time again, Hudson Taylor saw God do the miraculous. One time looking back on a on a series of what does this have to this passage has nothing to do with Hudson Taylor seeing the miraculous. This isn't a circle maker prayer. How are you getting this? miraculous events in his life, Hudson Taylor once said this, there are three stages in most great tasks undertaken for God, impossible, difficult, done. (laughs) Undertaken for God, God commanded them to do, God is the one who caused those walls to fall. All they did was shout. Yeah, this is this Hudson Taylor's life has nothing to do with explaining what this text is about. Yeah, I love that. Impossible, difficult, done. Most of us spend our days looking at walls of impossibility in our lives. You may be facing one this weekend. It may be an impossible situation with your... Yeah, Jericho, the story of Jericho is not about overcoming walls of impossibility in your life. You're twisting God's word, Terry. Your health. It may be an impossible circumstance with a relationship. It may be an impossibility in your financial life. And the bad news is that it really is impossible. But the good news is that horrible circumstances are always the perfect setting for the miraculous. Uh, I I have no idea what connection this is to the story of the walls of Jericho. None. There's, There's like no connection at all. Well, maybe his problem is that he didn't read the passage. Back to the Jericho miracle. In spite of the oh, yeah, please. evidence contrary to the promise, here's what God says to them. God says, I want you to march around this city, this citadel, one time every day for six days and march in silence. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times and at precisely the right moment, I want you to shout and I will give you the city. So they did. Well, actually, language matters here. It doesn't say shout and I will give you the city. It says shout for I have given you the city. Way different theology there. And on the seventh day, at the seventh lap around, at precisely the right moment in time, the children of Israel lifted up their voice in a mighty shout of praise. And the Bible shows us that the walls came crashing down. God excels 
in impossibilities. And when God be- uh, again, God excels in impossibilities. Th- th- that, this is why you have to actually exegete a text. I mean, it, it, the way he's presenting it, it sounds like, oh, this is what this passage is all about. But after I just read it, I mean, you know, like I know, what he's saying has nothing to do, it's not even connected to anything that's there in the text for real. Begins to work. It is amazing how it goes from impossible to difficult to done. One day it's impossible, the next day it looks difficult, and the next day God shows up and the promise is fulfilled. Now that begs the question, how? In recent years, archaeologists have unearthed the remains of Jericho, and they've given credence to what we know to be true according to the Bible, but nobody seems to know how. Someone suggested it was the exact pitch of their voice. It was the resonance of their tone that dislodged the mortar and the bricks and caused the walls to come tumbling down. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know how miracles take place, but I know they happen through faith. I I thought they happened through God. I can tell you how the walls of Jericho fell. You ready? God did it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, is that God said he was going to do it, and the children of Israel had faith and believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Pretty simple. So, um, again, what we're dealing with here is a form of circle narcissistic isog... Yeah, you get what I'm saying. Circle Jesus. I can't even use a word for it. Yeah, suffice it to say this. The story of the fall of the wall of Jericho, historical story, and it really happened. And it's really not about God demonstrating that he's really excelling at the impossible and he's ready to tear down the walls of the impossible thing in your life. That's to do violence to these biblical texts and to make them say something that they don't say. But we do know from the New Testament that... The Old Testament stories present to us type and shadows of the things to come, okay? Tupas and Skia, if you're a Greek scholar. And uh, the idea then is this, is that we see in types and shadows in the Old Testament what the thing that was casting the shadow in the New Testament. When it comes to the judgment of the world, though, that reality is yet to come. And the type and shadow we see of that in the Old Testament, it's in several places, including the flood, but also including the story of the fall of Jericho. Keep that in mind. That's what's really going on here, not you learning how to shout in faith you know, to your the walls of the, the impossible. And Yeah, you get what I'm saying. In your life, that's to do violence to God's Word. God's Word really doesn't teach any of that. Okay, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon review. This should be interesting. Brozog from Passion Church. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll be right back about discovering the king in you or something like that. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. Not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. (laughs) Is it kosher for me to just hum along to my bumper music? All right, let's do this right. Here we go. Oh. 
Bad, the Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Passion Church up in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Jonathan Brozog presiding. The name of the sermon is entitled The King in You. Ay, ay, ay. Now, can I make a point here? And that is, is that um, on the last day, Scripture says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I get real, um, well, I don't want to say upset, but nervous, um, antsy, uh, when I hear pastors saying, oh, discover the champion in you or the king inside of you. Now, granted, Christians are referred to as kings and priests. But that's something that's given. That's not something that's within. Does that does that make sense? Anyway, let me go ahead and kill the music without any further ado. Here's Jonathan Brozog, Passion Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The King and You, uh, rather than King and I, the King and You. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, you guys ready for our one week series, One Generation Away? Come on, let's give God praise, all right? Uh, one week ser- series. <laughs> Can you do a series in in just one installment? What? <laughs> Away. All right, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go with me to the book of Acts. A very familiar passage, just one verse. The book of Acts chapter 13. I'll read verse 22. It says, when he had removed him, he raised him up unto them David. Everybody shout David. David to be their king. So God here has removed King Saul, and he has installed King David, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man, everybody shout a man, after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your word. I pray that you anoint me. He's going to pray on, uh, he's going to teach on that one verse. And make it about me? Oh, please, please, please do not do that. Because, <laughs> oh, man. Wait till you hear the context on this passage, by the way. Let's let him kind of spin this out a little bit. See what he does. Maybe it won't be as bad as I'm hoping. It, I'm gonna, I don't hope it's going to be bad. But as bad as I'm cringing about it potentially being. If you were, I pray that you anoint me to minister it with clarity and conviction. I need you today. I am some sufficient, but you are all sufficient. And I pray that you'd use me as a nail in a sure place. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Everybody set? Amen. Let's give God praise. Come on, one more time. I was reading an article uh, this week uh, by Rachel Evans from CNN. And you can read the article yourself. It's entitled, Why Millennials Are Leaving the Church. And uh, I'm 34. I don't think I, if I fit, I barely fit into that category. But uh, why millennials are leaving the church. And we have a generation coming up that is not 
uh, finding themselves in God's house, not finding themselves uh, believing the core fundamental values for which a lot of us grew up in and believe as Christians. And I talk to people today, you know, why are we serving? Why are we volunteering? And, oh, somebody else will do it. But I just want you to know, as a society, we are not moving towards Christianity. We are moving away from Christianity as a nation, as a society. Come on, amen about that. And, and people talk like, why is it so intentional? Why do we need to do these things? Why is it so important that we, we do these things and be intentional about sharing faith? Because we have a generation where less than 10% of the people in this nation actively go to church on Sunday morning. Less than 10%. In the 50s, it was over 50% of the people in America actively attended church uh, on Sunday. And then we think uh, the stats are telling us that after the baby boomers generation goes, it's going to be less than 1% of the people in this nation actively attend church on Sunday morning. So as a nation, as a society, we are not winning this. We're not moving forward. We're actually moving away from or losing this battle. And I think there's ever been a time for the church to rise up and talk about what we believe and stand up for love and joy and peace and righteousness and home and family and a relationship with Jesus Christ is now. Can I get an amen about that from the church? And uh, I just want you to know that. What does this have to do with Acts chapter 13, verse 22? Which, by the way, is a fantastic passage. When you read this in context, it is an example of the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel. And it's brilliant. It is a wonderful sermon. We'll get there in a minute, though. Hang on. Let's see what Brozog's continuing to do here. And... Uh, I just want you to know that because, you know, people are like, why are we in church and why are we doing these things and why are we trying to resource the church? Because we just live in a generation where it's not the norm to go to church on Sunday morning. And we're one generation away from, from teaching our kids about our faith, teaching our kids about what we believe and why we believe it. Because one day we won't be there. We've got to impart into the next generation these core fundamental values that we're in that were entrusted into us by the New Testament church that Jesus Christ died for. Someone say amen. And I thank God that I grew up... Yes, Jesus Christ died for us. Can we elaborate on that a little bit? And I thank God that I grew up in a home with parents that love Jesus. I'm thankful about that. I'm not ashamed of that. And I'm thankful that I grew up with a mom and a dad, and they're still married to this day. Can someone say amen about that too? And... I think, I think that's a great thing. And my parents, you know, love the Lord. And it was Jesus Christ that held my family together. Uh, my mom and dad would not be together if it wasn't for Jesus. He is the glue that held their marriage together. Uh, parenting me, there's no way they'd be married still or whatnot if it hadn't have been for Jesus Christ. I'm glad I grew up. Uh, I grew up with siblings. I'm glad that I wasn't an only child. I realize that there's only children here and, and people here who did grow up without parents. But I'm just telling you about myself. I'm glad I grew up. Yes, you are. And that's the problem. You're telling us about yourself. <clears throat> that's the, my cue to actually read this passage to you. You have your Bible. Let's go to uh, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, and what we are going to do is we're going to read what this is all about. We're going to start at verse 13 so that you get the context. Paul is on a missionary journey, and we're going to listen in as the Apostle Paul preaches about not himself, 
but Jesus. Listen to this. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Am I, I, I am not he. No, but, after, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which they are, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found, him, found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up, up, up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid in his father's uh, with his fathers and saw corruption but he whom God raised up did not see corruption so let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses but beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. So, who is this sermon about that the Apostle Paul preached? 
It's about Christ. And when he talks about David, he's giving the lineage leading to the Messiah. So verse 22, taking verse 22 out of context here is to miss the whole point because verse 23, you know, let me in fact, let me read verse 22, the apparently the verse that this sermon is based on. And here's what it says. And when they had removed him, that's Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Who will do all of my will? Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. This passage is about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us following some pattern regarding David in our lives. And Jonathan Brozog at the moment isn't preaching about Jesus, as he rightfully pointed out. Well, he's talking about himself. We continue. She had three children, and she didn't child-proof the house. She house-proofed the child, and she had knickknacks out, and you didn't touch them. Come on. Anybody grew up like that? Uh, anybody's lived long enough to realize, to thank God you, had, you got a spanking once in a while? Is anybody there yet? Some of y'all are just still in counseling. But um, I've lived long enough to realize that I'm glad I was disciplined. The Bible says, for those the Lord loves, he chastises. You know, you know, people that love their kids, discipline their kids. People that don't love their kids, just do whatever you want to do. I don't care if you come home. I don't care if you spend the night. I don't care what you do, who, who, who you do it with. Just go whatever. But when you love your kids, you get involved and invested in their life. And it taught me obedience at early ages. I learned obedience at early ages. I got spanked in church. In church. You know, you didn't fall asleep in church. What? And it wasn't like cool lights and stuff. It was like an old guy on an organ singing, I'll fly away and keep me near the cross and nothing but the blood of Jesus. Everything was in 4-4 timing. And it was just like monotone. And service was four hours. You go home, you eat a pot roast. And then you leave, you're falling asleep, and you go back for the revival service which started at 6 o'clock and went till the Lord was done. Come on, someone say amen about that. I remember, I remember a thing in church called Sunday school. Does anybody remember that? With the felt figures and, and, and the little baby Jesus and the little lamb and, and you, know, you move them around. But that's how I learned the Bible. I learned the Bible with felt boards and Sunday school teachers that volunteered and gave their life for the cause of Christ. And, and I thank God for that. I thank God that I was raised uh, where in a church that taught me the word of God. And I made mistakes as a young man, as a teenager, all those things. But ultimately what was invested into me came back. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 22 and 6, it says to train up a child in the way that they should go. That when they're old, they will not. Everybody say, will not. Say it again. Will not. Will not depart from it. And you've got you've to think, what are you training up your children to do? If you train God's word into them and invest God's word into them, there may be seasons where they walk away. There may be seasons where they make mistakes. There may be seasons in their life. But ultimately, what you invested into them is going to come back and stare you in the face and say, Here I am. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth. 
that shall he also reap. And if you, if you sow God's word into your children, listen, parents, it will save you heartache, tears, and pain. Because one day you will not be there, but the Holy Spirit will be there to lead them, guide them, and direct them. Amen? And it's about taking action. It's not about, you know, waiting for... Yeah, all the things you've got to do, you've got to do, you've got to do. You will not be there, but the Holy Spirit will be there to lead them, guide them, and direct them. Amen? And it's about taking action. It's not about, you know, waiting for somebody else. It's about taking action. And, you know, I've got $20 here. Who wants it? Who, who wants to run up here and take this from me? Now, again, just a reminder. Supposedly, this sermon is supposedly about something to do with Acts chapter 13, verse 22. I don't see anything, any effort on his part at all to actually read this text properly in context and help us understand what it really means, which is the job of the pastor. Take it. All right. And you know what? You know what? I'm going to have to give him something because, I mean, it's a great effort too. But Anwar, God, I give Anwar a, a big God bless you. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Opportunity. Everybody say opportunity. Opportunity is available like that. And, and I, I stood up here and I said, I have $20. Who wants it? And most 99% of you sat there. None of you took action. And you waited on someone else. To take the action. But you now you don't have an extra $20. And that's what we do in life. Like God is staying there saying, I have wisdom available. I, I, I have this available for you. I have a relationship I want to give you. But, but, and it's right there. All we have to do is take it. But we sit there and we wait for somebody else to teach our kids the word of God. We wait for somebody else to pray with our kids. We wait for somebody else to invest into our families. We wait for somebody else to take the initiative. And somebody else gets the blessing. See, that, that same thing that caused you not to get up is the same thing I'm talking about. Whatever that is that's in you, whatever that thing that is in most of us. Pe- people talk about like, well, you know, that person was, you know, they just got rich. No, they didn't. It's, the reason why most people are rich is because most people are not willing to take the initiative to take the $20. Is this rocket science or is this making sense to people? Whatever that is, that feeling that you felt when I said, who wants this, that feeling is what you've got to get rid of. You've got to get rid of that feeling that causes you not to take initiative in life, not to take initiative to to go after God, not to take initiative to serve and to volunteer and to rise up and become what God has called you to be. If you believe it, come on, give God praise all over the house. Because it's modeled for our kids. How many of you would have loved your kids to take the $20? How many of you would teach your kids, if somebody offers you $20, you take it. How many of you would say that to your children, right? So we've got to model that to them. And let's get rid of this whatever attitude that we have that causes other people to take the initiative. You know, being broke is a choice. I can't get an amen. Being broke is a choice. You're broke because of the decisions that you've made in life. You know, being, being, being wealthy is a choice. People who, who are married for 25 years, it's a choice. People who have children that love God and serve God and are actively involved in ministry, that's a choice. That doesn't just happen by accident. That's a decision that you make. Life is about decisions. You reap 
what you sow. I love talking about David, and David here is a shepherd boy, and he's training for his, uh, for his destiny. He doesn't even know it. It's not about being a shepherd. It's about training for his destiny and didn't even know it. Oh, man. It's, uh, for his destiny. He doesn't even know it. It's not about being a shepherd. It's about training for his destiny. A lot of time God calls you to do things and, and what he's called you to do, uh, is, is all of your life has been preparing you for that moment and you don't even realize it. Like I have amazing self-confidence. And one of the reasons why I have amazing self-confidence is because when I worked for JMAC, I had to talk to people who didn't want to talk to me every day. I had to get up and go talk to people who didn't want to talk to me. And it just built amazing self-confidence. I talked to young guys, and he's like, I just like this girl. I'm like, go ask her out. And he's like, I don't know. I'm scared of rejection. He's like, dude, just go to the mall and ask out like 10 girls. The first 10 girls you see, ask them out. And you probably get rejected by all of them. But then you build up a tolerance to it. It doesn't hurt that bad. Come on, guys. Am I right about it? Hey, would you go on a date with me? No. I don't, you're ugly. Nobody wants to go on a date with you anyway. I'm just trying to be nice. Don't say that. But, but David, you know, he had a resume here. He, when he went to fight Goliath, you know, he says, you know, I've killed the lion. I've killed the bear. And the same God that delivered them into my hand will deliver you into my hand. He, has a, he had a resume of dead carcasses laying behind him. And see, all the things that you've gone through in your life was God preparing you for what he's going to do in your life. So okay, now notice the emphasis. Notice the emphasis. Here, we've got Brozog basically preaching about you. When the Apostle Paul in Acts 19 mentions David, it's in the context of giving his lineage so that they can know that the Messiah has come. And Paul is preaching about Jesus. Big difference. Huge difference. A resume of dead carcasses laying behind him. And see, all the things that you've gone through in your life was God preparing you for what he's going to do in your life. Some of the misery in your life, God's going to use your misery and turn it into your ministry. Because God wants to use what the enemy intended for bad, he's going to turn it around for the good and use it to bless you, use it to promote you, and use it to make him famous in the earth. Someone say amen about that if you believe it today. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. And that, that, what I want you to write down is there is a king in every kid, and there's a kid in every king. The reason David reached his greatness. Um, there's a king in every kid and a kid in every king. Acts 13.22 doesn't teach anything of the sort. There isn't a single biblical passage that, that says any of this. And here's the problem. Brozog isn't actually exegeting or teaching any biblical passage. Now, this comes back to our stated goals here at Fighting for the Faith. If you're attending a church like this, where your pastor's preaching about you, and he's not actually rightly handling a biblical text and teaching it so that you can understand and know God's Word, you're not hearing a biblical message. You're not hearing a Christian sermon. You're not even learning what the Bible says. Rather than being discipled, you're being deceived. And that's what Brozog is doing. If this is your pastor, if this is, you know, and I, and I mean that both literally and figuratively, I, I have bad news. You're in a church that's not actually building you up and teaching you God's word, and you're not being edified. You're being deceived. And the focus is not on Christ and what he's done, but supposedly on these slogans that uh, Brozog is so quick to bring up. Yeah. <clears throat> we continue.
The reason David reached his greatness is because somebody came to him and told him who he was when he still wasn't. Uh, no. Actually, David, <laughs> who he was when he wasn't, no, no, no. you got to remember, David was the anointed king of Israel. God called him to that office. Um, you and I are not called to be kings of Israel in that, oh, man. <sighs> Narcissistic eisegesis. This is narcissism going on here. And the weird thing is, is supposedly Acts 13, 22 is the passage he's preaching from, and that's from a sermon about Jesus. Sad, isn't it? Somebody looked at him when he was just a boy and spoke greatness into him. You know, one of the reasons why... Uh, Samuel had a hard time, the prophet, the man of God, Samuel, had a hard time finding David is because God called him a man when he was just a boy. God said, I found a man after my own heart. Because when God looks at you, he calls you not what you are, but he calls you what he knows he can make you. And boy, that sounds like a right handling of the text, but it's not. It's complete nonsense. God had to tell him. The reason why Samuel didn't recognize him is because he wasn't there. His father didn't bring him. You know, when when Samuel showed up, David was still out doing the, the tending of the sheep thing, and they had all the sons of Jesse pass before Samuel. And he had to ask, are these all of your sons? And, well, no, they're still that, the, the youngest. Okay? It wasn't that he didn't recognize him because he was a boy. It's because he wasn't there uh, when the, his brothers were presented. When you go, don't look at the outward appearance. Look at the heart. And so he lined up, he went to Jesse's house, and Jesse brings in all of his sons. And a true man of God made mistakes trying to look with his eyes. And he went to pour the, uh, the oil over these men. The only thing that stopped it was when he went to pour the oil, the oil wouldn't come out. The anointing told him Jesse had another son. What passage in the call of David does it say the anointing oil wouldn't come out? I'm going to have to find this passage while he's doing this. Oh, this is a horrible telling of the story. It's a good place to shout right there. What God has for you is for you. Other people can get in the position, but they can't get the power because the oil won't flow. And when the horn found the head, the oil flowed. God says, I found a man after my own heart while he was still just a boy. Well, okay, now here it is, First Samuel chapter 16. I mean, let's see. If I read this passage, will I find that, you know, Samuel was trying to pour oil on the different sons of uh, Jesse, but the oil wouldn't pour? Is that what this text says? First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being the king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Okay. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look upon his appearance or his height or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Notice, doesn't say anything about, here, hold still, and trying to pour oil and it doesn't come out. Nope. Rozog isn't handling these texts properly at all. And then he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now notice, in Brozog's retelling of the story, none of the details are matching. Brozog basically said, Oh, well, the reason why Samuel didn't recognize David was because he said, I have chosen a man after my own heart. So he was looking for a man. No, actually, the reason why Samuel didn't, quote, recognize David, because David wasn't there. He wasn't there to be recognized. And neither does the text say anything about the, the horn of oil not pouring until David shows up. Brozog here is just making stuff up now. This is no way to preach the word of God by teaching lies about it. God says, I found a man after my own heart while he was still just a boy. When we look for kings, we look for people that have already arrived. But when God looks for kings, he looks for kids. I'm going to say that again. When God looks for kings, he looks for kids. Because God knows that there's a king in every kid. And And really, if God knows that there's a king within every kid... Which passage of the Bible actually says that? You're teaching this as if it's a Christian doctrine, and it's not. Nowhere in Scripture that says, does it say that God's, there's a king within every kid. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that anywhere. Life with all of my insecurities and timidities and failures and struggles and flaws and everything that's wrong with me, I've been able to do it because I had fathers and grandfathers and uncles and pastors and mentors in my life that looked at me when I was a young man and when I was a teenager and when I went to college and they looked at me and told me that there is a king inside of you. And when people know there's a king inside of them, it helps them control the kid in them. But in the absence of a kingly prophecy, you're left as a child to play with your toys. If I was able to do anything for God and and accomplish things in my life, it's because I had people in my life that looked at me and said, look, there's a king inside of you. God's got greatness down inside of you. You can't do what you see. Where in Scripture does it say God's got greatness down inside of you? The problem that we have is not that we don't recognize our greatness. The problem is, is that we're all sinners. And we need to repent and recognize that we are sinful and in need of a savior. Out of you. You can't do what you see other people do. You can't go there. You're not going to be able to to go there and do that. I know it doesn't look like anything's going to happen. And I know that other people are doing it that love God. But you're not going to be able to do it because there's a call on your life. God has called you and separated you. And there's an anointing on your life. And because they kept keeping that vision burning brightly in me all of my life, it helped me control the kid in me.
How many of you know we got some childish behaviors? Don't look at nobody. Just look down. And I remember a lot of times in my life I wanted to act out. There's things I just wanted to do. And I'm like, well, those people love God. They're doing it. Why can't I do it? And, 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 but if I hadn't had that in my life burning brightly in me, I mean, I had, uh, we used to do revivals. Anybody know about revivals? Like two-week revivals. Anybody? I know we didn't do it at Passion, but anybody grew up with that? Like, uh, and you just went to church every night for two weeks. Some of y'all can't even fathom. You can't even get your head around that. Uh, That's what we did. And, and I remember men and women of God would come, and I'd be a little child. And, or, and I remember being a young man, a teenager, and they would look at me and say, Jonathan, look, I don't know, I don't know what God wants to do in your life, but there's something there's, God's hand is on your life to do something for him. And, and I want you to go the distance. And when you get tempted to do this or to do that, I want you to be reminded that God's called you to do greatness. And when, and when you know that there's a prophecy in your life, it helps you control the kid in you. Because there is a king in every kid, but there's also a kid in every king. Am I helping? Again, this is utter nonsense. Not even biblical. The Bible nowhere says any of this. This is not a Christian sermon in your life it helps you control the kid in you because there is a king in every kid but there's also a kid in every king am i helping somebody shout amen and i worry today because no one is listening at our next generation of kings and when nobody will listen to you you lose respect for your own words i remember being a young man and i would have questions about god and i'd talk i'd say things and looking back i'm like that doesn't even make sense but they never made fun of me, and they, they never mocked me, and they never intimidated me. And they say, that's, that's an awesome. They would say things like, well, that's an idea. But, but, but a lot of my stuff, even though I was just meranderings and foolishness, they never mocked me or intimidated me. And they, and they always lifted me up and built that into me and, until I had respect for my own opinion. Until I had respect for my own words. See, some of you, some of you don't have respect for your own words. You don't have respect for your own opinions because you don't believe that there's a king down on the inside of you. Man, this is getting more diluted by the minute. This is, it's practically satanic. The emphasis is so I-centered rather than Christ-centered. King down on the inside of you. And if I sound like I'm passionate, I am. If I sound like I'm on fire, I am. Because I believe we're in real crisis because we are one generation away from not knowing Jesus. One generation away from not knowing the Holy Spirit. The reason why I'm saved today is because my father gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. My grandfather was lost. My grandfather was from Poland. My grandfather was in Poland and he, he moved to the Bahamas. Uh, he was part Jewish and moved to, to when, when the Nazis invaded Poland, he left and went to the Bahamas and met my grandmother to, and joined the British Air Force. My, grand, my grandfather's from Poland. My, my grandmother's a Bahamian. Diversity runs in my generations, runs in my family. And, and, and my whole, my, they had nine children. Our whole family didn't know the Lord. My grandfather did all kinds of things that were ungodly. And my dad had an encounter with God. He had an experience with God that changed his life. He asked a girl out on a date who was a spirit-filled Pentecostal believer. And she said, I'll go out with you, but you got to meet me after revival service. It was in revival. And so he went. And she came out to the car after church, and she said, oh, I forgot something. I got to go back. And she went back in and didn't come back out. 
And he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And so he went back in. And when he went back in, it was the first time in his life that he saw people moving in the Holy Spirit. She was slain in the Spirit on the floor, crying. And, and, he's, and I won't go into all the details, but he saw God begin to move, and it just messed him up. And he, and he left. And that night, God came to him. The Holy Spirit came to him and asked him to preach his word. And he got down on his bed and gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. God filled him with the Holy Spirit in his bedroom. But he was still intimidated about that church because he grew up Anglican Catholic, which meant I was baptized Anglican Catholic, but I don't actually practice any of the belief systems is what his deal was. And then he started going to so many churches. You're on an island. There's only so many churches to go to. And he finally went back, and he went back and gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ there. said, God called him to ministry. He left his nation, walked away from his business. He had 30 men working with him. He was engaged. He had a home, left his nation, left all of that, and came to America and went to seminary and met my mom and, 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 be, and has done ministry and been married ever since. And he changed the destiny of our family because he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And instead of passing me a generational curse, he passed me a generational blessing. What? A blessing. My dad grew up without a father. My dad grew up, nobody knows what happened to him. He grew up without a father and gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. And God was his father. And so his relationship with the father is his relationship with God. And that's the same challenge that David had. What kind of father is this that forgets about a son? David had massive father heart issues. What do you mean you forgot about me? He, his father didn't love him. His father didn't look after him. What? Other heart issues. What do you mean you forgot about me? He, his father didn't love him. His father didn't look after him. His father didn't, didn't help him. God taught him how to be a man. That's what, that's what made David pant after the water brooks of God. Because God taught him how to be a man. God taught me how to walk with my back up straight and look up when people talk to me and speak up. He said God taught his fingers to war. You might misunderstand David writing the book of Psalms. Sounds like poetry, writing songs. You might misunderstand him if you catch him at a moment writing poetry. You might think he was effeminate, but he was definitely in touch with his feminine side. But don't misunderstand David because David was known to cut off a hundred Philistines' foreskins and throw them like rings at the feet of the king. David didn't take any mess. And God taught him to be a man. He said, the affirmation that comes in my life comes from God. I didn't have a father in my life, and it haunted him all of his life. And that's why God said, I found a man after my own heart, and I've anointed him to be king. So you've got to believe that there's a king down on the inside of you that helps you control. The no, actually, that passage doesn't say anything about you having to discover or believe that there's a king inside of you. That is not what this text is saying at all. The real strength of any man is knowing his limitations, and you will never be powerful until you know what your kryptonite is. What? <laughs> I have to know what my I can't be Superman until I know what my kryptonite is. This isn't biblical. I don't know what this is. And I'm not convinced that 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 that. All of us are willing to talk about it, but I think every man in here knows what his kryptonite is. Hebrews 12.1 says that sin that does so easily beset us. 
There's some sins that we just don't fool with, but there's some other sins that are just so easily beset us. And if you're a man in here and you're over 10 years old, you already know what it is. And I, I, need, I need mentors in my life that let me see their struggles and convince me. I, I, I try, when I mentor young men, I try to let them know, look, man, I'm, 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 I'm a fallen leader. I'm, I'm flawed. I'm, in, I'm not perfect. I, I struggle. I make mistakes. And I need to show people their struggles because it convinces me that if God can use you with your struggles, then maybe God can use me. Come on, someone say amen about that. I don't need a mentor or someone who acts like they never have any problems, has never made a mistake, because you ca- I cannot relate to you. You don't inspire me. You intimidate me. Besides, I don't believe you. You tried to make me spiritual, but you really made me suspicious. And I like to use David because when you start talking about David, the Bible is very clear to talk about all of his challenges and he had father heart issues and and all these kind of things. And and God taught his fingers to war. He had this passionate, intimate relationship with God. And he he found a way into the presence of God that was different from any any other person at that time. The only way into the presence of God was to bring a blood sacrifice. But David found another way into the presence of God. He said, instead of bringing God a blood sacrifice I found out that if you bring him a sacrifice of praise he will let you in it became so valuable that it was known as the key of David and you don't need a key unless there's a lock and you don't lock up stuff unless it's valuable (laughs) I know I have used this phrase before but evil can evil could not jump that leap in logic Wow And you don't need a key unless there's a lock, and you don't lock up stuff unless it's valuable. He said, I found that if you bring God a sacrifice of praise, he will let you in. See, that's why when we do praise him. If you bring him a sacrifice, he'll let you in. Now, this is a works righteousness, God. You better bring your sacrifice or you're not getting in. Feel him, and sometimes you don't. It's because God's presence has the ability to be felt or not be felt by you. That's why you can be having worship, leading worship, and you're standing up here, and you see somebody with tears running down their face, and they're worshiping God, and the other person's sitting there playing with their nails like this. And you're like, well, is God there? Is God not there? Yeah, God's there, but God's letting this person into his presence, and he's not letting that person in. Just because you came in the doors didn't mean that you got in his presence. That's why the Bible says, that's why some of you are going to leave without joy, because the Bible says, in his presence is fullness of, and there is pleasure forevermore. One of the worst things to do is be in church and not be in his presence, because then it sucks. It's like being at a buffet with no plate. So how do you get in his presence? Spending time with him throughout the week. You can't come in his presence dirty. That's why, that's why when you spend time with him throughout the week, he'll let you in, like, into his presence while you're in his car, while you're in your car. He'll, he'll let you in. Again, what is he preaching from exactly? It's while you're in his car, while you're in your car. Anybody's ever gotten in the presence of God driving down the road, and you're driving down the road, and tears are running down your face, and you're worshiping, and people are like, who are they talking to? <laughs> presence of God. You can get in the presence of God in your cubicle at work. Our prayer as a church is that you feel the presence of God more in your house than this house. 
Because until you do, many times some of you can pervert the use of the church and use it as a means of escapism to avoid the realities and issues within your own home that you don't want to confront. At the end of service, we want you to go home. More importantly, we want you to want to go home. Because it's a terrible thing to have to go someplace you don't want to go. And the presence of God can be accessed by spending time with him, developing a relationship with him. And David found that. He said, if you bring God a sacrifice of praise, he will let you into his presence. No passage says that. I keep having to point it out. What's the point of having a biblical text if you're not going to actually open it, read it, and preach it and teach it? If your pastor won't do that, he's not being a pastor. He's being something different than a pastor. Maybe a, a hireling or something. But n- this is just one non-biblical assertion after another after another veiled with biblical words. Into his presence. God taught him to war. He realized that he needed the affirmation from God. His one smile from dad is worth the 20 kisses from mama. Come on, guys, say amen to me. Mama tells you you did good whether you did good or not. But if the old man nods at you and says, you do good, boy, now you got an S painted on your shirt. You can do anything because it's not over until dad, daddy says it's over. Amen? And I'm not saying that mama should stop loving us. We have survived on the breast milk of your love and nurturing and affection. But what I am saying is that breast milk is not enough to raise a, a child and let alone raise a man. And as long as he stays stuck to your breast, uh, drinking your milk, you, what we do is we nurture baby Hueys. They get bigger, but they don't get better because you never release them to do the things that God has called them to do and accomplish. Someone say amen about that. God is not your mother. He's your father. Uh, I, talk to, I talk to my kids, and when I, when I tell them, I told Alexander, go back to school, I said, everybody's not going to like you. Everybody's not going to think you're funny. Everybody, enjoy, don't tell him that. He's just wonderful. He's just everybody. I can't, why would they not like him? Everybody's going to love him. And everybody's not going to like you. Everybody's not going to think you're wonderful. Everybody's not going to think you're funny. I said, but you are somebody in Jesus. You are the head. You're a leader. It's not popular to be a leader. So you rise above the, the, the stuff. You see somebody being picked on, you go run to their aid. You go help them. And it, it, it's, it takes time. People may, make, people may make fun of you, but you draw the fire to you. You draw the fire to you. You see somebody being made fun of, then you draw the attention. That's what I do with my friends. I got friends in ministry, and if one of them goes down, I will say something stupid and draw the attention to me. We do that in our round tables when we go around. I'll, I'll, I'll get, when some, somebody starts getting attacked. I was in, in one, I had a friend. Somebody started attacking one of my friends, and, and, and another one of my friends says, well, who the heck are you? It's like, you know, in school, you just push somebody. Just draw, just draw the fire because that's friendship. Friends look out for each other. Come on, someone say amen about that. Friends look out for each other. We'll draw, I'll draw the fire and say, you draw the, somebody's bullying somebody, you draw the attention to you. Don't laugh. Don't get a part of it. You know, say, what are you doing making fun of him? Draw the attention to yourself. That's what leaders do. Teach your kids to take responsibility, especially those of you that are raising young men. Teach them to assume responsibility. If you don't, you're raising some young girl's nightmare. Cue sappy music. By the way, if you're not familiar with that little phrase of mine, the sappy music is employed in these types of churches to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending upon the congregation and getting ready to do business with people. 
This is a form of emotional manipulation. And um, it, it, it's a very effective technique. But I can tell you this. God the Holy Spirit probably has absolutely zero to do with this sermon because God the Holy Spirit's word, which he inspired, has been mangled and twisted and added onto. That's what Brozog has done. He's added to God's word rather than, than exegete it. And um, God the Holy Spirit generally doesn't descend and bless this type of preaching. This is the kind of stuff that actually condemns people and send them, sends them to hell. Uh, you know, again, I kind of point out the point. Um, if you're going to lie about God and twist his word, who's going to mediate between you and him when you stand be- before him on the day of judgment? Not a wise thing to lie and deceive in God's name because there's nobody that's going to be able to mediate between you and him on that day. Think about it. We continue. Raising some young girl's nightmare. David was the first boy that God called him a man while he was still a boy. He said, I found a man after my own heart. There is a king inside every one of you. No, there isn't. The Bible nowhere says that. You've got to be honest enough to look at the toys that you play with. You know, the old saying is the only difference between a boy and a man is how much he plays for his, pays for his toys. But there is some prices that are just astronomical if, if, you, if you look beyond money as what we pay. Some of us pay our health, we pay our marriage, we pay our family. Sometimes you got to be honest enough to open up your toy chest and let's look at what you play with when no one's looking. And if you find yourself constantly playing, you know, with the, with the toys in life, maybe it's because you don't believe that there's a kingly prophecy in you. Uh, nowhere in scripture does it say there's a kingly prophecy in you. He's encouraging people to believe something about themselves that is not true, that is not taught in God's word. This is patently false. Maybe you need to have a better understanding of who you are in Christ. Understanding means a truth that you stand under. Now, what truth do you stand under? <laughs> understanding means a truth that you stand under. <laughs> oh, man. Stand under. Do you stand under God's word that you're the head and not the tail? Or did you allow somebody to speak something into your life? At some age in your life that told you you're not this and you can't be that and, and you just believe that, you've got to remove that. It's like John Maxwell talks about the law of the lid. How do, a flea can jump six inches, but how six feet, but how do you teach it to jump six inches? You put it in a six-inch jar. It'll jump up and hit its head, jump up and hit its head. You take it out, guess how it'll jump? Six inches, even though it can jump six feet. And some of you, you have the ability to jump far in life, but you've jumped up and hit your head and jumped up and hit your head. And now that you have the opportunity, you feel like you can't do it. I want you to know you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you, that you are the head and not the tail. You're above and not beneath. This is nothing but a litany of the absurd and just mere assertion without any biblical text. Tail, you're above and not beneath. You're a child of the king. When God offers you something, take the initiative and go for it. Get out of your seat and run for it. Run for it. Spectators don't get the prize. Participators. Run for God. Run, you know, like a mighty army that said, uh, 
move the church of the living God. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about, I run, I run not like one that beats the air, but I run to obtain the prize, the high calling of Jesus Christ. Amen, Brother Giva? You should listen to this guy preach. He's awesome. And I want you to know that God's got great things in store for you. And there is something down inside of you. And if you feel like, man, I'm... Yeah, the thing down inside of all of us is sin. ...things in store for you. And there is something down inside of you. And if you feel like, man, I'm having a hard time controlling the kid in me, maybe you need to recognize that there's a king in you. Because when you know that there's a king in you, it helps you... Uh, where can we go to find an example of the apostles talking about discovering the king in you and believing in the king in you? Speak over them just what they're doing and what they are. Speak over them what they can become. I have challenges with, with Nicholas. He's my, he's my middle child, and, and he has delayed speech. And, 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 and so it, it, it hurts his self-confidence because he can't talk right. You know, and Alexander can talk right, so he just, lean, he just really leans on Alexander and, and, like, looks up to Alexander for everything. You know, when I ask him, well, what do you want to do, Nicholas? He looks at Alexander. I said, don't look at Alexander. What do you want to do? You're a leader. Don't look at him. You're a leader. You're an individual. You, your, your choices matter. See, he doesn't have confidence in his own ideas. He doesn't have confidence in his own opinions. So when you ask him a question, he looks at somebody else. And then that'll happen all of his life. You've got to help teach your children your thoughts matter. Doesn't matter what they're talking about. Tell them they're important and you're smart and that's bright and it's brilliant so that they can get confidence in their own opinions. So they can get confidence in their own ideas. Uh, again, where does the Bible teach this? Nowhere. Confidence in their own ideas. And teach them God's word. Open it up. Yeah, you haven't done that, Jonathan. Don't you think as the pastor, it's your job to actually model that? You know, <clears throat> you're not modeling it. Teaching God's word, you haven't taught any of it. And teach them God's word. Open it up. I have them come in. I, I, I tell them when I'm sick, I say, come pray for dad. Put your hands on me. You know where I learned that? From my dad. My dad still calls me and says, I'm sick. pray for me. Call me, ask me to pray for him. He's been doing that all of my life. Every day before I went to school, my parents brought me in and, and we quoted scripture and prayed. They laid their hands on me and they prayed over me every day. It makes a difference in the lives of, the lives of your children when you include God in their life. Yeah, it also makes a difference in the life of your congregants if you would actually, you know, preach the word. You know, just saying. Do football, do sports, do all that kind of stuff. But also do the Holy Spirit and do a relationship with Jesus Christ and do the word of God. We've got to teach this to our children. We've got to teach them that there's power in the name of Jesus. That there's healing in the name of Jesus. That there's deliverance in the name of Jesus. That, there's, that there is an anointing that can break the yoke of bondage and slavery in their life. We've got to impart this into them. Because one day we're not going to be there. Come on church, amen. 
One day we're going to be gone. We've got to teach this to the next generation. At least the world go to hell following witches. This is not a game. Um, boy, yeah, isn't it interesting how, you know, how the music gets louder when he makes his points and stuff like that? And none of this stuff is actually taught in the Bible. He's just kind of fishing for amen lines or something like that. This is not a game. We're talking about eternity. And none of us are promised tomorrow. None of us can give an account for tomorrow. Only today is why the Bible says, choose you this day whom you shall serve. You're not promised to to be around 40, 50, 60 with your kids. You're not promised to walk your daughter down the aisle. You don't know what the future holds, but you know who holds tomorrow. And if you can get them in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the only thing you can take to heaven with you is your children. Everything else you're working for and killing yourself for and can't have time to pray and can't have time for God's word. You can't have find time to teach them God's word. You're going to leave all that behind. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to teach God's word. I don't have time to instill it. The only thing you take to heaven with you is them. That's it. They are your greatest investment. They are the most precious thing on God's earth. Make time. Make it your business to make time for them. May God take sleep from your eyes. May the Holy Spirit convict you so much you can't sleep unless you go make time for your family. And make time for your children. Where we add the conviction in our lives to say, I can change this. I can change this. To where hell will never see my children. Hell will never see my children. We don't even talk. We don't even say the word divorce in our family. We don't say it because it's not an option for us. Other people, it might have been an option and maybe they should have done it. They were in a situation. But for me, it's not an option. I'm not going back to the, I'm not going back to put that curse on my home that my dad worked so hard to get us out of. Come on, somebody say amen. There is life after divorce. We just had Ruth Graham in here who ministered, who's been divorced uh, a few times. And she got up here and ministered the word. Wasn't that amazing? Come on, church. Say amen about that. There is life after divorce. But you've also got to understand that this is God's best. There's nothing easy about it. There's nothing, there's nothing easy about it or convenient about it. Nothing convenient about it. Say, Alexander, dad, dad, dad. Nicholas, dad, dad. All of them, dad, dad, dad. And Nicholas, dad, daddy, what? What do you want? Uh, he doesn't forget what he wants to say. And sometimes he just talk because he, he can't talk. He can't talk right. And sometimes when he's just talking, it's like, I want to be like, what are you doing? I got to go. I, you, I said, yes, Nicholas. I love you. I'm listening to you. You said that good. I, I, he, he falls. He's clumsy. He falls a lot more than, than, um, if they're playing, he's the one that's going to get hurt. Always. Always. It was just, we were at the state fair, and he, he had hurt his, he had a ward on his thumb, and we had to go, I had to take him to the doctor and get that frozen off. We had to coach him all day on that. And, 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 and then it blistered, and what is going on here? And, and then he was, he was playing with his nose and causing his nose to bleed, and I had to put a Band-Aid on his finger, so he didn't do that. 
and then I had to, and then he, then he was playing at the fair, and he got hurt, and then he fell down, scraped his knee. I'm like, Nicholas. But I, I noticed I kept, I, I, there was a season where I was speaking over him what he was doing. Stop falling. Why you fall? You're so clumsy. Stop being clumsy. And every time I say he's clumsy, he kept falling. And it was like speaking that over him. point where you have to start using faith to parent because your kids are not what you wanted them to be and they're not maybe what they should be and so you've got to use faith because faith calls those things that are as though they so I start saying Nicholas you're so gifted you're so agile. You, you, you got amazing balance. You're so fast. Look how fast you are. The fastest kid I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen somebody run so fast. And, and you just see his confidence come up. I say, you talk so great. You speak so great. You do this so much. And his confidence come up. Because he's got to get confidence in himself before he can deposit confidence in anybody else. You can't give what you don't have. I'm not interrupting a lot at this point because I want this sermon to be over. It's that bad. Else. You can't give what you don't have. How's he going to be able to deposit confidence in others if somebody doesn't have some confidence in him? You've got to speak those things that are not as though they were over your children. Say you're bright, you're brilliant. Tell them they're a king. There's a king in you. You can do anything. You're smart, you're bright, you're brilliant, you're beautiful. Hug your daughters, kiss them. Tell them they're beautiful. Spend money on them. Come on, Dad, say amen. Spend money on them. Somebody else will spend money on them. If you don't spend money on them, spend money on them. Buy them flowers. Take them on a date. Show them how a man loves a woman. So that they're not desperate for the touch of a man. They'll do anything because my dad hugs me. My dad kisses me. I don't need to be cuddled by you. My dad cuddles with me. My dad plays with my hair. It makes a difference in your life when you have a father. It makes a difference in your life. Why are you just talking to the father so much? Why are you just ministering to men? Because as goes the father, as goes the home. Every time God healed a man, he sent him home because a blessed man produces a blessed house. The disease that God healed more than any other in the Bible was blindness. And God never healed a blind woman in the Bible. Anyone who got healed of their sight was a man because your vision is in your head. Uh, what? Because your vision is in your head. Send him home because a blessed man produces a blessed house. If there's a man in this house that loves God and serves God, I don't have to worry about the wife or the children because there's already a pastor in that home. You are the spiritual authority for your home. Pray for your wife. Pray for your children. Lay your hands on them and pray for them. Believe God to do something great. There'll be no school violence in this year. There'll be no bullying. You're the head and not the tail. You're above and not beneath. You're a leader. Call those things that are not as though they were. Speak it into existence. Watch God move in your life. You get something out of this today? Come on, give God praise all over the house. 
Uh, thank you. I'm so glad that that is done. That, that was horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. Unfortunately, there's a whole lot of people who attend churches who hear that exact same kind of pablum. All of these assertions, none of them biblical, pastors who don't pay attention to any text, they don't actually read a text, They all they do is puff you up and puff up your ego, and everything they say, none of it is actually a Christian doctrine or a biblical teaching. If this is you and you attend a church like this, it's time for you to find another church with a real pastor who really handles God's word, who really exegetes the biblical text, and points you to Jesus Christ, not yourself. That's the problem. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.